Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In the Republic, Plato sums up his leadership ideal by saying, if I may paraphrase, philosophers must become kings, or those now called kings must become philosophers. And thus is born the idea of the philosopher king. But what do we today mean when we say philosopher king? Like Plato, we're not just talking about leaders who are adroit political managers or are well-educated or whose circumstances have provided them a bounty of experience from which to draw. Obviously, all these things help a leader be successful, but the philosopher king is more. They seek truth. They have an appetite for knowledge and a desire to understand justice. They are, in Plato's words, wisdom lovers. To use Plato's ship-of-state metaphor, the philosopher king is a true pilot, and must, of necessity, pay attention to the seasons, the heavens, the stars, the winds, and everything proper to the craft. In the practical application, what we're talking about are conscientious, serious, dutiful rulers who are invested in the well-being of their state, which, in this formulation, is understood to be necessary for the people's survival and who, though they are imperfect human vessels, seek harmony with, and seek to anchor their rule in the good. For today's episode of Fifty Shades of Great, we're considering two leaders that today's panel believe fit the billing for Philosopher Kings. Since it's been a while, I just want to remind everyone the basis for Fifty Shades of Great. Here, we attempt to compare two or more similarly situated, though not identical, historical individuals, and by debating their merits and failings, and evaluating how each acquits themselves in relatively analogous situations, we hope to be able to arrive at an answer to the question, which was greater? Our subjects today 
are Imperator Caesar Marcus Aurelius Antoninus Augustus Germanicus Sarmatius, and Wen Wu De Sheng De Guang Zhao Huangdi, which I know I just killed. But just in case you weren't following that, what I mean is Marcus Aurelius and Tang Taizong. We are proceeding from a place where we recognize the differences in culture, circumstance, time, and place that separate these individuals. Yes, Marcus lived in the second century and ruled during the waning phase of the Pax Romana, while Taizong lived in the seventh century and ruled a waxing, newly reunified China. However, as emperors of vast, powerful empires, they were exposed to many of the same intractable problems of power, and were forced to grapple with threats from both without and within. So let's get started by introducing the panel. First, I'd like to welcome Chris Stewart from the History of China. Hi, Chris. Hello, uh, I'm Chris Stewart, and I will, kind of as a matter of course, be supporting Taizong in this matter. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Uh, next, also joining us, is Stephen Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast. Hi, how are you guys doing? Doing good. Great. And next we have Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. Hello, everybody. Good to have you. Good to be here. And finally, I'm Tom Daly, host of American Biography. So, guys, let's start at the beginning. These were both considered rather pretentious youths. And I think I will allow you, Mr. Stewart, to open up by giving us some of the early life of Tang Taizong. All right. Well, first off, uh, I have to say, Tom, that uh, you did a good job with the name there. Oh, thanks. So, well done. <laughs> That's a difficult name to say, and uh, you certainly uh, were swinging for a home run there with the full imperial name. And, uh, good job. <laughs> uh, anyways, so our good emperor Taizong, he did not start life as such. That's actually a name that he would never have used, um, in life. That's actually one of his, uh, posthumous, uh, temple names. But since it's, you know, more convenient, that's what everyone calls him. He was actually born as Li Shemin, and he was born in the, in the year 598, to his father, who at that who at that point was um, the duke of a region called Tang, hence where the name of the dynasty comes from. So he was born under the previous dynasty to the Tang, which is called the Sui. And um, growing up, he was you know he was a son of a duke. He was uh, a prince in his own right, and he was given all the very best education that his father could find. But as as would prove to be the case, he was growing up in an era where the previous dynasty, again the Sui, was failing. This was in large part due to the massive expenditures of the emperors at the time. So as a result, as a very young man, he would join his father, and some sources say even sort of lead the way and sort of drag his father along in leading a rebellion against the failing Sui dynasty and overthrowing it, ultimately, with the help of his father, as well as his sister, not to mention all the other, you know, soldiers in the armies there, establishing the new Tang order. So he's actually considered to be not only the son of the founding 
emperor of Tang, but also, in essence, the co-founder of the dynasty. So that that kind of sums up uh, a lot of his early life. I think that's pretty impressive. All right, well, then um, I think I'll jump in then and give the counterbalance of the situation that you know Marcus Aurelius's early life was situated in, and uh, then we'll kind of open it up for some comparison. So I'm going to start with one of, I think, the best quotes written by any historian ever from Edward Gibbon's uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So he says, If a man were called to fix the period in history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the ascension of Commodus, which is Marcus Aurelius' son. The vast extent of the Roman Empire was governed by absolute power under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. The armies were restrained by the firm but gentle hand of four successive emperors, whose characters and authority commanded involuntary respect. The forms of the civil administration were carefully preserved by Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, and the Antonines, which was Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius, who delighted in the image of liberty and were pleased with considering themselves as the accountable ministers of the law. Now, Marcus was just the son of one of Hadrian's buddies, but he got noticed. He was a very introspective, very reflective young man who really impressed his tutors. Hadrian nicknamed him Verissimus, meaning the most true. And maybe that means, oh, you're really honest and I appreciate that, or you're a goody two-shoes. So it could have been, it could have meant both. Um, and also, when he was young, he fell under the sway of the Stoic school of philosophy, which came to dominate you know, his, his intellectual life and his, his outlook. And we see, even growing up, a rich Roman noble essentially wearing hair shirts and sleeping on piles of hay on the ground, living the punk rock philosopher life until his mom had to yell at him and tell him to start acting as station. Uh, because as part of Hadrian's succession plan, he adopted Antoninus Pius and made him adopt as his heir, young Marcus Aurelius. So what does everybody think? What do you think? You want to comment about where they're coming from? Any opinions? Any ideas? The two rich kids. <laughs> this is true. Son of a duke... Son of a noble. Not exactly rags to riches. No, 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 no I wouldn't say that either. Uh, Steve, you got anything? It's kind of interesting, though, that that um, Marcus, he wasn't in direct line for the imperial title. And that, um, you know, that they did kind of pick him out of the as one of the best of the crop. Yeah, um, yeah, that's very true. You know, he was recognized for something. No one knows exactly what Hadrian saw on him. Uh, he seemed kind of like a moody teenager, but there was something impressive about him uh, that caught the emperor's eye. But I, I don't think that should at all, though, you know, necessarily upjump him over, you know, Taizong, who maybe was a little older, but 
still was playing a major part in in the civil wars with the you know overthrow of the shui is that not not right chris i i think that is right um and i will also say it's it's kind of interesting to with your uh summary there to see you know how uh marcus was sort of chosen for this uh whereas in many respects uh taizong would actually kind of murder his way to the top uh, <laughs> old school so so n- old school uh n- maybe not a maybe not a mark in his favor but definitely um you know og in that regard uh, <laughs> different kinds of meritocracy yes very much so <laughs> Um, I think it's worth noting while we're on the topic, um, you know, we're, we're talking about two civilizations, obviously, that are very different. Uh, you, you can't say that they're in any way comparable in, in a one-on-one. Ben, what phrase would you use to describe comparing the two societies? Um, so the tip of my tongue, some sort of fruit metaphor. Uh, um, perhaps. perhaps. Limes and mangoes? Pomegranates. Perfect. Um, yes, we are. We are. We have a prohibition today using the term apples and oranges. But um, it's even though the orange is clearly the superior fruit. <laughs> while while we were waiting for you, Chris, um, we had a a lively debate about the uh, virtues of the apple versus the orange. I'm glad you <laughs> used that time, you know, fruitfully. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, but um, see, so it's very two very different societies. Uh, you know, not only in in the time and space, but also Rome is about to hit its zenith and begin its its slow decline that will eventually you know go into the crisis of the third century. But China is is getting its act together for the first time in a great number of years. Uh, so, I mean, they're definitely coming from different places, and it's going to take somewhat different types of leadership. To... I'd say there, there's also, uh, just in terms of the government structure, there, there's an interesting element of that. I, I've been thinking about this all day, that uh, the Roman structure was much more constrained. The The leader was much more uh, responsible to the Senate in a way that the Chinese emperor, in my reading of things, could kind of just be like... You guys have to do what I say. I don't know if you'd agree with me there, Chris, but, you know, via the bureaucracy, he had the bureaucracy as a counterbalance against the nobility, sort of, whereas the nobility was the bureaucracy in Rome. Okay, that that's an interesting uh, thing to bring up and an interesting point. Um, I will say, I will kind of uh, temper that, because I, I think you're, you're onto something there. I will temper that in saying that um, at this point... I could give you two examples of uh, one force that the early Tang Dynasty had to defer to, and one force that Taizong in particular chose to defer to. So he, he, much more than many of his predecessors, chose to defer to his own court, to his own administration and functionaries, much more than, than the, the Sui Dynasty. That had been one of the failings of the previous dynasty, in fact. Hmm. Um, so he, he made a very conscious choice to try to listen to people, even if he didn't like what he, what they had to say, the, (laughs) which, I mean, it, it doesn't sound like much, but, um, it's something that the emperors prior to him had, uh, you know, rather spectacularly failed to do. 
and sure. they kind of bubbled themselves off and uh, only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear, and so they only realized that they were, um, you know, losing the Civil War uh, as the uh, as the enemy armies marched through their own palace gates. Then the force that he was forced to contend with and, and really pay close attention to was actually not even inside his own empire at all. Unlike, say, Rome uh, during the time of Marcus Aurelius, which was the preeminent superpower of the West and had no co-equal, you know, state up up against its borders. All all you really can say that was really facing against Rome were the disunited Germanic tribes of the North, um, which I mean were formidable to be sure, but it was never a unified political power to to, to contend with. Meanwhile, what uh, Taizong came into the throne facing off against and actually indebted to in sort of a vassalized relationship, which is strange enough to think about, was actually the the Turkic Khanate, um, which occupied the, the region, which is today, for instance, Mongolia and Western China, which was actually a stronger military power than China at this time and had supported the Tong Rebellion against the Se. At the cost, of course, of being the uh, the Turks' vassals. So he had two really big forces to uh, to contend with, and which all of which tempered his own, at least on paper, autocratic power. I just want to point out that I actually disagree with you, Ben, about what you said <laughs> uh, about Rome being a more restrained model. I think that's entirely uh, illusionary, and right. I think that's entirely tied to the temperament of the Caesar. Augustus is the, you know, the guy to look at to, to show you, like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not the emperor. I'm the first citizen, right? No biggie guy, relax. But then as soon as he's gone, you know, look at the type of emperor um, that Tiberius is. Look at right. the type of emperor that uh, Caligula and um, Nero were. There's really no – you can't tell me that there's really a counterbalancing force there that's not there, the Caesar himself. There is in the terms of the Caesar's ability to restructure society, which sort of – you don't really see that until you get to um, Diocletian or Constantine even. And at that point, you've left the Principate and moved on to something different, uh, whereas well. – um, and we can talk about this maybe a little bit more later. There are some pretty significant ways that uh, it seems to me that Taizong was able to restructure Chinese society to a certain extent in a way that wouldn't have been possible in Rome in terms of things like land reform and stuff. Okay, well, that, that's fair. It also seemed to me that the, what struck me is, I mean given relatively that they lived not too long apart, it seemed like the world had changed dramatically in both East and West. Like Central Asia was probably at its zenith of power and the Silk Road was at its peak at that point. And that was just a very different world than the world that Marcus Aurelius lived in. I also, I, I kind of picking up on that idea, um, I, Chris, I guess I would like to get your opinion um, because I came across something fairly interesting about a Han general named 
Ban Chow. Ban Chow, yeah. Uh, who, who apparently, some believe, had come as far west as the Caspian Sea. I'm linking of Frank McLean's uh, biography of Marcus Aurelius specifically, where he says that Ban Chow had put uh, Han garrisons not far from Tessaphon in Parthia, and that Trajan's Roman army, which had marched into Parthia in 114, uh, was only a couple days' march from Han Chinese forces. Uh, well, that's that's an interesting uh, assertion there. I would say that if, if there were uh, any Chinese armies close to Roman armies at any point, it would have been at the furthest eastern and western reaches of their possible, you know, arm stretch of power, uh, respectively. Um, I, I, I would have... I've, I've not read what you uh, are referring to, so I cannot... <laughs> I can't really comment directly on it. Ban Chao, according to this, he had chased the Changnu pretty far west, uh, almost to near to near Parthia. Um, and this is the point where he sent Gan Ying as an emissary to Rome. Okay, yes. And the Parthians bamboozled him. So I think it looks like some people put him much further east, some people put him much further west. Okay, now, now um, I'm... Now I'm his uh, launching point. Sorry, now I'm caught up uh, with, with where I'm... Yes, I mean, that, that was definitely the furthest west that any uh, Chinese had ever gone. And, uh, Gan, Gan Ying was the, was the emissary who went, wound up, you know, going all the way. Ban Jiao, I, I believe, was the, you know, regional administrator of this extremely distant, you know, thousand mile away, um, uh, region called Xiyu, which just literally means the far west. And it's what is today, you know, the most western region of China. Um, and it is right up abutting to Transoxiana, you know, Bactria, the furthest stretch of Alexander the Great's uh, conquests all the way up to India. It, it hmm. basically only stops at the Himalayas. And you do have this this abutment there where the Chinese were actually right up against the Persian Empire and even would eventually fight a battle against the Arabs who had taken over the Persian Empire by that point, and uh, they'd actually lose that battle. Um, so it, it is conceivable to think that, you know, there there might be, within a few days' march, uh, a Roman army at the height of Rome and at the height of Han, respectively. That That's just amazing to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. But yeah, Steve, thank you for bringing, like that opportunity to talk about that up i was really nerding out about that <laughs> and it sure it seems like persia was always like the the black hole between the two cultures where they were probably never going to mix because the persians didn't have any interest in letting letting them mix because they were the middlemen in the silk road trade yeah i mean it should be said exactly. that the persians were pretty much uh, were a pretty organized state they beat the Romans repeatedly, actually. Uh, it was only... I, I don't know if uh, Marcus Aurelius was the first one to beat them, but, uh, I mean, there's certainly the the greatest extent of beating the Persians was under him. Yeah. Well, I think we're using the term Persia, Parthia, uh, sort of interchangeably. Yeah. yeah. Here, because it, it's, it's just su- succeeding empires 
uh, in the same general area, like the Seleucids, the Sassanids, and the Parthians. And then obviously Chris mentioned, and then later it was, um, you know, the Islamic. The Umayyads uh, and then the Abbasids and yes. The Umayyad, yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, they were they were constantly this buffer, which Rome kept kind of uh, hitting up against going east. Crassus, that's who did him in. Mark Antony had a pretty disastrous campaign against the Parthians in the east. Um, so yeah, they, they were definitely hanging tough right in the middle there as this like permanent buffer force. But that's going to switch back to our main, uh, protagonists here for a second. Sorry I derailed us. Um, no, no, no. No, sorry. That was delightful tangent. Delightful tangent by all. Talking about the, the modes by which they took power. Um, I'll just start with. Marcus. So, as we mentioned, the Marcus was handpicked, and then he essentially moved in with Antoninus Pius, uh, who became emperor when Hadrian died, and then just stayed by his side for like twenty-three years, while this this schlup of a senator who was just supposed to be a placeholder just kept living, <laughs> and. You know, he he learned his job. He was uh, dutiful and, you know, got the offices always a little bit earlier. You know, and that had been something that started with Hadrian, getting him into priesthoods that he didn't qualify for. Um, you know, suddenly he marries Antoninus's daughter, Faustina, and by 19 he's a consul already. And he's already been a, a quaestor well before the age that they're supposed to be. I mean, he was clearly groomed and, and ready to go, and he also had a adopted brother named Lucius Verus. So when Antoninus Pius died, usually when there's a brother out there in one of these situations, things go one of two ways. <laughs> Either you kill the brother real quick, <laughs> or there's a civil war, and then one of the brothers dies. But what Marcus did... Even though it was the clear intent of the last two emperors for him to be the next emperor, he goes before the Senate and insists that they make his adopted brother, Lucius Verus, his co-emperor. And co-emperors will be the norm a century later. But whether this was some type of, you know, feeling that the Mediterranean was too big a place for one guy to rule, or... Whatever his reasons, he did a rather remarkable thing and chose to share power. And that's how he ascends to the purple. Anyone want to take a whack at Taizong? Anyone named Chris? Yeah, I think that's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. How, how strange. Okay, and, uh, yes, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, oh, okay. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go for it, Steve. Yes, it's easy. <laughs> Okay, so this this prince, Li Shamin, who will eventually become Taizong, he uh, either, and sources differ on this, he either uh, follows his father into war or he uh, sort of cajoles his father into war. But in any case, they, they, uh, they win the war, and uh, he becomes this war hero. He is... Uh, 
the the commander who fights at this this crucial pass, which basically staves off the uh, the enemy army, and so he becomes this this you know decorated war hero and the like. But even still, he's not in line for the throne. Um, like uh, Marcus Aurelius, he actually has some brothers. Um, and unlike Marcus Aurelius, he does not really care to organize a power-sharing arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> so for a period of, of several years in the, the early uh, 620s, uh, you kind of get this Cold War going on, where all these these princes are sort of building up their forces and sort of secretly, you know, these, these back-alley dealings that the emperor is not really aware of, because at this point he's kind of in his dotage, he's sort of an old man that's just kind of sitting on the throne enjoying himself. But what happens is that the emperor, who's called Gaozu, which just means, you know, like the founding ancestor, uh, so you get that a, that a lot in Chinese history, these emperors called Gaozu. It's just the foundational uh, emperor. He's away at his summer palace. He's he's out of the capital, enjoying himself. And um, inside of the capital, under supposedly orders from the then crown prince, uh, who is a, supposedly, again, trying to organize a palace coup to just sort of, you know, take power and, okay, dad, I'm the emperor now and there's nothing you can do. Well, the emperor hears about this and he sends for the crown prince to, you know, report to him and explain, you know, what exactly do you think you're doing here? Um, so the crown prince uh, rides out of the capital, but as it turns out, um, Taizong has anticipated this. And this is uh, at the, the gate in the, the capital city called Chang'an, which is called the Shuanwu Gate. So as, as the uh, prince is actually not riding out, but actually coming back uh, to the capital, he's trying to enter through the Shuanwu Gate, and Taizong has basically bribed the, 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 the palace guards, the guards of the gate, to sort of look the other direction while he and his friends uh, carry out what's going to be uh, a fairly bloody coup. So not only one prince, but actually the crown prince and another of uh, Taizong's older brothers are actually, they're, they're riding together, they're kind of in cahoots. They approach the gate and essentially the, the trap is sprung. Uh, one of the brothers, the crown prince, is killed immediately by an arrow. The other then uh, runs off, but is chased down by one of Taizong's, you know, military commanders and personal friends, a general, who uh, cause, causes the prince to fall from his horse. Then, uh, actually, in in this sort of the struggle, Shimin, uh, sorry, Taizong. Uh, also gets thrown from his horse, and the, the two princes are uh, actually in hand-to-hand combat, struggling, and it winds up that uh, Taizong gets the upper hand and str- strangles his brother to death. As a result of this... What? Yeah. Um, so as a result of this, with, with his two older brothers dead and uh, the emperor sort of off doing his own thing, it's, it's kind of a fait accompli. It's, the deed's already been done. Uh, there's nothing for it, and and uh, Taizong ultimately is since he's now the el- the eldest surviving brother, uh, he is per tradition becomes the uh, the heir. So he gets what he wants. <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> that that's like that's a Hollywood yes. fight. Like, 
I fell from my horse and we went hand to hand and I just so happen to be the oldest brother now. <laughs> Strange how that works out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to open it up to everybody right here um, as far as power transitions go. What do you think? Well, you prefer the one where no one dies. Yeah, it's not as exciting, but I think that one, i that's the tally I put up on Marcus's side. The other thing that struck me, though, is from, uh, Chris, I was listening to your, your episodes on Taizong today as prep for mm. this, uh, and one of the things that struck me is that um, Taizong's father, he he had at least a good couple of years where he was, he was actually ruling, and... Um, I mean, it struck me that that was actually an important period for getting stability because he was clearly a much more cautious, uh, inward-focused kind of ruler, and, and that that was a uh, it was an important part of establishing the dynasty. So I I think that there's an interesting parallel there in terms of uh, these power-sharing arrangements being important for getting things stable and uh, off to a good start. Yeah, I, I agree. I couldn't find where is the Tong homeland? Like, what part of China is it? So, when we're talking about um, these these early uh, Chinese uh, areas, the easiest thing to just keep in mind is it's, it's it's essentially what is today northeast China, the areas around Beijing, around the Yellow River. That's really the Chinese heartland. And that is where the vast majority of the population lives. I mean, I, I live in Shanghai, so I'm, I'm just south of the uh, the Yangtze River now. Um, but at this point, there are people down there. People have been living down there for a while, but it's still this relatively unpopulated sort of stretch of not quite empty, but definitely not full land. So when we're talking about China in this region, although militarily it extends, you know, far to the south, the population center and where a lot of these important people are is around, you know, Beijing and Tianjin and uh, that northeastern region. Yeah, and I think that'll become more important when we start talking about wars. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, I had one extra question there. So he killed his brothers. And when did he tell dad it was time to retire? <laughs> that That is kind of the heart of the question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like, cause Ben, Ben talked about the power sharing agreement and stability, like how, to what extent do you think they were actually sharing power versus dad was allowed to keep breathing? Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, dad was, dad was allowed to, t to keep breathing to be sure. He was kind of too, uh, as, as Ben mentioned, he's this sort of figure head, this important sort of stabilizing force as long as, you know, the old ticker keeps going. So he didn't want to off dad, you know? Good, good for him, I guess. Um, but he, uh, Taizong also knew that this was not going to go over well with him. Uh, he, the emperor had, in fact, been, you know, it, it makes sense. He was favoring the heir. He was not favoring little brother uh, to, to usurp this title. So he'd been favoring the now dead uh, elder prince. And he knew that the, this whole, you know, murder spree was probably not going to go over well. So he he sort of stage manages this and uh, basically makes sure that, that there's no other reaction that the emperor can give other than acceptance. And, and it's uh, 
I actually have a, a quote from a story named Pro, uh, Professor Weschler. Professor Weschler uh, says, and I, and I quote, uh, General Yu Chi, which is the uh, which is Taizong's uh, uh, commander, now entering the palace in full armor and armed with a spear, an act normally punishable by death. General Yu Chi confronted the visibly startled emperor with the news of the deaths of his two sons. It was Li Shimin's dramatic way of announcing to his father that the tide of events at court had turned and that he was now in full command. So th- there's no option given to dad. It's just, hey, dad, not only did I kill my two older brothers, I'm now in charge, and I know that I'm in charge to the extent that I'm going to send in my general armed, which is a punishable criminal act, because I know that I have all the power. So uh, Emperor Gaozu is, as I said, he's not killed, but he is. Uh, he takes the title of Taishang Huangdi, which means retired emperor. So he's just sort of kicked upstairs to this very ceremonial position and no longer has any power. Um, and uh, Taizong takes over the functional aspects of government until Gaozu's death. So Taizong kind of accidented into a conveniently smooth transition period <laughs> not smooth but he accidented into a, a stability period while he and his brothers were in the midst of a cold war uh, yeah that's a good way to put it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's extraordinarily badass i will give him all the credit in the world he's kind of like an action superhero you would rather have marcus aurelius as a brother <laughs> yes <laughs> I think I think that is a safe bet. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about their their youth, we kind of compare their societies a little bit, where they're at. We've talked about how they came to power. Now let's talk about a little bit, because it's come up a couple times and, and we've curtailed it, the wars that they've had to fight. So during Marcus's reign, you know, he initially did have a partner, as we talked about, Lucius Verus. And right when they took over, these two young, inexperienced, completely on-martial emperors with no real military training, who, who literally hadn't set foot in a legionary camp, um, the previously quiet but plotting Parthian Empire launched uh, an invasion of the eastern provinces, essentially. Um, and, you know, as is, happens over and over again in, in Roman history, they are able to absorb the first punch and, and sort of push back. Marcus himself doesn't really become involved uh, in the Parthian War very much. He sends uh, Lucius Verus, who is sort of the complete opposite person that Marcus is, who's very sober, very serious, 
Um, Lucius is this debauched gambler uh, who goes and sets up, you know, in some eastern city and sends more capable generals to win the war, essentially. So Parthia isn't really Marcus's war. He stays in Rome and, you know, he keeps the center strong, essentially. But the Parthian War is important mainly because of its side effects for the rest of Marcus's reign. They win some land in the east because they, they do end up like the Romans do, start churning up victories and grinding their opponents into dust. But what comes back much more than, you know, spoils from war is the Antonine Plague. And the Antonine Plague is is one of those things that basically changes the arc of history for the Roman Empire. I have a quote here from a historian uh, named Niebuhr who concluded that as the reign of Marcus Aurelius forms a turning point in so many things, I have no doubt that there was a crisis brought on by that plague. The ancient world never recovered from the blow inflicted on it by the plague which visited in the reign of Marcus Aurelius. So basically, from here on out, for a number of years... This plague, which they think was a form of smallpox, would just continuously sweep through the empire. And I've seen some stats that suggest that at points it was causing up to 2,000 deaths a day in Rome. One quarter of everybody that was affected essentially died, giving the disease a mortality rate of about 25%. Uh, The total deaths have been estimated at 5 million people. So that's you know, pretty significant, and the disease killed as much as one-third of the population in some areas. Um, And obviously, whenever you have a contagious disease like that, one of the most affected areas are always military camps. So Roman manpower becomes a uh, a scarce commodity in a way that it, it never was before. And what happens as a result, is there's these German tribes north of the Danube who notice fewer and fewer legionnaires on the other side of the river. And starting in the 160s, these German tribes begin to test the northern border and begin to come down into Roman territory. And they're led by tribes like the Macromani, uh, the Sarmatians, uh, the Izigis are different tribes that, that come up again and again. Initially, both Marcus and Varus go up to meet the threat because they're pushing down into near northern Italy now, places that Germans hadn't been since Gaius Marius. So a response was necessary, and both Marcus and Lucius Varus responded. Uh, and then Lucius Varus died, most likely of the Antonine Plague. So all of a sudden, Marcus is the sole person in charge. And again, he's got zero military experience. At least Lucius had been a delegator at the front of a war in the past. And these wars will go back and forth for the entirety of Marcus's reign, from the mid-160s to his death in uh, 181 A.D., 
I think what's impressive about him is, again, coming from a place where he had no experience, he committed himself, committed himself entirely to it. He didn't put himself up in anything resembling a city because there really weren't any cities by the Danube. But he was comfortable, you know, living in a tent with his men, or you know, near his men at least. And it was part of his Stoic philosophy, you know, that he could endure these hardships. You know, he probably acquitted himself better because of it. I think the worst part of reading about the Germanic Wars from Marcus Aurelius is the fact that every time he seemed to come close to finally just, I need this one more battle where it'll, I'll just end it. And I'll defeat them so thoroughly that I'll never have a problem here again. Something always came up. A fire in another part of his empire would start, and he'd have to run off and deal with that. One time, there was a rebellion in the eastern provinces who were getting upset about all the time and resources that were being spent on the Danube, the frozen waste of the Danube. And the second time he came that close, he died. He died of the Antonine Plague, ironically, and his son, the wastrel son, Commodus, who we'll talk more about later, instead of just finishing the work that his father implored him to, that all the counselors implored him to, he cut a quick deal and ran back to Rome. So that's Marcus's military career. Probably not that impressive. You know, there's no great battles. It's not marked by strategy and... Uh, tactics, but he's the type of guy who knew what his duty was and just ground it out. I have a feeling that this is a place, though, where Taizong probably is going to outshine, but I guess we'll see about that. <laughs> okay, so shall, shall I uh, regale us with the, uh, the Great Emperor's Tales? Please do. Okay, so coming into the throne in the uh, the early 620s, uh, Taizong already knew that he was going to have to contend with, well, what what his father had been able to contain with promises and with payments, but was still, you know, looming over everything that they'd built, which was the Turks, the Turkic Khanate, which, as I think I said earlier, was the preeminent military power of East and Central Asia at this point. And... Much like the, you know, the, the later Mongolian Khanate that would, you know, sweep across Asia, uh, the Turkic Khanate was, was a very similar kind of, you know, coalition force where it was all these different tribes, uh, all under the banner of this one, you know, powerful uh, top group, which was, of course, the, the group of Turks. Um, and the reason that I bring that up is, is because it's going to play into the whole reason that uh, Taizong is able to essentially overcome them, which is that uh, this sort of, you know, uh, internal infighting uh, goes on. And so that's that's all I need to really say about that whole aspect of it, uh, because otherwise we'll just get lost in the, <laughs> lost in the weeds. Um, so essentially, Taizong inherits the throne of, of China as sort of a vassalized, you know, lesser version of a country. And he like uh, many of his uh, countrymen, are not terribly happy about that. And very quickly after he comes into power, the Turks sort of realize, or they decide that, oh, this this deal's not, you know, 
super favorable to us or it's not favorable enough to us. So we're going to, you know, give a little show of force. And it turns out that uh, Taizong, at this point, this is, uh, I believe, 626, at the, it's called the Battle of, of uh, Wei River. He winds up concluding a piece, but it's he has to give a whole bunch of treasure, and it's it's just kind of an embarrassment for him. So he starts off with a sort of embarrassing, you know, capitulation, and it, it basically haunts him for the rest of his reign. He never wants to have to do this again. And as it turns out, he will not have to, because by even the following year, 627, this whole infighting within the, the Turkic tribes starts to boil over into actual civil war. And so this great military power of the Turks actually kind of fragments. And that leads to the the Tong Empire being able to capitalize on that. So Emperor Taizong, he realizes that this is his chance. And I should say that uh, it's kind of an interesting thing that uh, not too terribly many people know about the Tang Empire is that unlike, for instance, the earlier Chinese empires or mostly even the later Chinese empires, the Tang is very close to the Turkic peoples. This is a result of their own sort of civil war and sort of the the moving in of a lot of these non-Chinese, you know, North Asian peoples. But even though the Tang emperors had sort of constructed this false genealogy that traced them all the way back to, you know, Lao Tzu, who founded Taoism, and saying, oh, yes, we're really super duper Chinese. In fact... <laughs> they they looked like Turks. They, in some cases, even dressed like Turks. They spoke Turkic to each other. They only used the Middle Chinese language in terms of their official edicts. They were Turkic, or at least partially Turkic. Um, so they had this relationship to these northern tribes that the Han Chinese living in the south, they, they knew about this sort of but they were not allowed to speak about it. So in a lot of these older histories especially, they, they really downplay this, but um, it's kind of come to light in the last uh, couple of uh, centuries that, oh, by the way, this, this so-called um, Chinese dynasty, not so Chinese. That really throws a wrench in the works then of how you look at yeah, it. It does. Uh, that's that's a it is kind of a monkey wrench in the whole thing. Uh, it, and it throws a wrench into the whole idea of, uh, oh, this is the Chinese fighting against some powerful foreign force. And it kind of turns it more into like, uh, oh, well, you know, Taizong's trying to get his, uh, kind of trying to stick his thumb back into where he came from. And it turns out he not only sticks his thumb into it, but he uh, winds up winning the whole pot, essentially. <laughs> By... By about 6.30, he has overcome these three different factions of the sort of the fractured Turkic Empire and ultimately winds up capturing most of the different Khans of the Turks. Some some of them submit voluntarily because they, they kind of see which way the wind is blowing. Some of them, again, are captured in battle, but he really gets the, the sort of the coup de gras there by capturing the the Khan of Khans, the Kagan. And he, he brings all of these captured Khans to the capital city and holds this giant ceremony where all of the, the Turkish Khans, they're, they're prostrate at his feet and we, you know, with thousands of onlookers and 
they had to, you know, put their foreheads on the ground. They had to kowtow to him three times. And in this ceremony, he proclaims himself and all of the cons are, you know, well, they're at spear point. They're forced to agree to it, but they're forced to acknowledge him as the uh, Tangri Kagan, which is to say the Khan of heaven, the, the Khan of all cons who rules all of everything under the blue sky, essentially. Uh, which he could only really do and really lay claim to because of his largely unacknowledged Turkish ancestry. He could lay claim to that title because he was not fully Chinese. That's convenient. It is. Okay, so that's that's the uh, the high watermark of Tang Taizong's uh, military campaigns. And if he'd just left off there, it would have been just, you know, wonderful for him. However he he keeps going and he go, keeps going against the force which very unexpectedly had proved so difficult to defeat that it had actually overthrown the previous or really helped in overthrowing the previous dynasty uh which is korea or as we call it then goguryeo when we think of Korea now, we think of it just as being that peninsula, but in, at this point it was actually extended considerably north of the Korean peninsula and into what we'd call today Manchuria, all the way to the Liao River. So it was directly abutting China, and it was a, well, the Chinese at least thought it really ought to be a vassal. And they'd committed wars and wars, they'd, they'd built infrastructure to specifically funnel stuff to... to make these wars happen. They built giant canal networks to, to send things up to the north to fight these wars. And very unexpectedly and very expensively, time and time again, the Koreans had managed to just thump the Chinese armies um, in spectacular fashion. So very inadvisably, Taizong thinks, okay, now's time for another Korean war. I've, I've just, you know, I've beaten the Turks... I've become the Khan of Heaven, so surely these Koreans will just roll over. Well, it is not a um, glorious success as, as as he would have liked, or at least not as easy as he would have liked. In fact, this is the campaign against Goguryeo is the only time that he will experience defeat of any meaningful fashion. So uh, Tang initially decides to go with the the old strategy, which is to try to commit this ground force to uh, march north and sort of swoop around and then take the the Goguryeo capital, which is Pyongyang. And it fails spectacularly for the f exact same reason that these previous expeditions had failed, is, is that it's really hard to march an army uh, through northeast China. It's mountainous, it's rainy in the summers, it's, you know, frozen in the winters, it, the mud will just, you know, swallow things. Um, it's really hard. And then the Koreans, they're already there. They're already in their very formidable uh, defensive positions. And they, they're they just they're just stopped, essentially. They make no breakthrough. They, they kind of try to besiege the, the capital briefly. But then the, the Koreans, they break a dam and it, it just... Um, <laughs> It drowns the whole army, essentially. Um, so that doesn't work. So unlike uh, the 
unlike the previous attempts, uh, Taizong realizes, okay, there's there must be a better way to do this. This this broke the Sui dynasty. This threatens to break my dynasty uh, with just the cost of it all. So, in fact, he decides to enlist the help of an ally. The ally is actually uh, a large portion of southern Korea. Uh, it's a kingdom at this point called Silla or Shila. And Shila acknowledges Tong as kind of its, its uh, you know, big brother, sort of a vassal relationship. But uh, Taizong sort of cozies up to him and says, hey, let's work together. Let's really, let's really try to uh, make this Goguryeo problem go away. And uh, Sheila agrees. So they kind of, they, they launch this pincer offensive where Tong is going to keep Goguryeo's uh, focus on the north while Sheila is going to go and they're going to capture the other Korean kingdom, Baekje, which is allied to Goguryeo. And they manage to to capture this this third kingdom, and from there Tong can send forces over the ocean, and uh, kind of use that as a staging place. They beat back this Japanese naval force, uh, which is kind of sent to help, but then they go back to Japan and they're never heard from again. And as a result, in spite of this initial sort of crushing defeat along the the Liao River, uh, with the help of of Silla. Uh, they're able to conquer Goguryeo, and that not only brings the whole Korean peninsula, as well as Manchuria, into the sort of the Tang sphere of influence, but it also brings an end to the whole Korean Three Kingdoms period as well, uh, by crushing two of the Three Kingdoms and bringing the third to uh, to sort of its height of power. And so, even though... Goguryeo gives Tong its uh, gives Taizong his only major defeat. In the end, he is able to uh, sort of uh, pull out a victory from that, costly though it was. So Andy was lucky that he wasn't fighting both of them at the same time, the Turks and the Koreans. Oh yeah, very much so. So I guess you could say that there's a point of divergence between the two where it doesn't seem like Marcus Aurelius was really fighting a aggressive wars there there were the manpower shortages which did kind of forestall some offensives but uh after the initial you know initial pushes uh by the the germans he he hit back hard when he could so he was aggressively pursuing them um you know i've heard some people suggest that he was actually borderline going towards uh, genocide on some of these tribes as the way to um, stop this from happening again, like quite literally. Um, definitely wanting to send a message. Uh, the Azigis, uh, specifically, I've heard, he was set pretty much on getting rid of them, but for uh, the rebellion of Asidius Cassius in Syria, uh, which you know, I think we're going to talk about a little later. But no, he never he never contemplated anything on the scale of what Taizong, uh, you know, conceived with you know the wars in Goguryeo, which were you know, major, you know, strategic, you know, undertakings. Uh, I mean, the the resources uh, as Chris you know alluded to uh, that he really put into that is on a rather epic scale. I I think the 
the thing we're looking at Tai Zong's behavior there um, versus what Marcus was doing. Marcus was behaving defensively in the typical way the Romans uh, went to offense from the defensive perspective. Um, their entire empire spread that way. You know, your your conquest brings you up against a new enemy that you have to defend yourself from. So you better. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Conquer them. Marcus would have said he was had a defensive thing going on, as you alluded to, Steve, but Taizong was, was clearly just looking for conquest there, I think. What struck me is that he tried to go back again, and it was the second kind of offensive that he tried to mount that, to me, takes points away from him, um, because that seems to be unnecessarily thoughtless with you know the lives of your soldiers uh, and and the wealth of your country. You know where he was of an age where he could remember the Sway had, had, I believe, tried to invade Gregorio twice and failed, and that he himself had already done it and failed, and that that last attempt just seemed unnecessary. I don't know if you, anyone wants to pick that thread up. Well, I I don't disagree with you. I'll, I'll say that. Um, I, I, I will maybe sort of uh, attempt to provide an explanation as for why they were so uh, tenacious at trying to get this. And uh, though I wouldn't necessarily call it, you know, philosophical or or the mark of a philosopher king, it, it wasn't just naked conquest that was the goal there. It was this pursuit of of trying to restore the greatness of China in sort of this grand sense. It was trying to get... It wasn't trying to conquer new territory, or at least they wouldn't have told you that. They wouldn't have believed that themselves. They, they were trying to uh, restore the empire to its former glory. And part and parcel to that was restoring it to its old borders. Korea had once been part of the empire, and so had Vietnam. And so had uh, Mongolia, and so had you know uh, these other surrounding regions, and this drive in not just Taizong, but virtually every emperor of this age, both of the Sui Dynasty and even going forward, uh, other emperors of the Tang, is this drive to be as great as the great uh, Chinese 
dynasty, which was the Han, which is, you know, 400 years gone at this point. So why did two Sui emperors and now this Chinese emperor Taizong, why is he committing hundreds of thousands of lives to try to take this little spit of land? Uh, no offense to Koreans there. Um, it's, it's, it's this idea, this sense of we must restore uh, no matter the cost. So was it a smart move? No, no, I don't think it was. Um, but it, it also, I, it's not just, you know, we must take more territory and conquer for no other reason than itself. There is an idea behind it. I'd also say that the Romans never stopped trying to conquer people. I mean, um, during the Punic Wars, like, one of the things that gets commented on is that, you know, they, they any other political entity would have fallen long since. They just kept losing battle after battle after battle and just kept coming. But then even more... Um, you know, in line with today's discussion, they kept picking fights with the Persians over and over and over again and never, I mean, much, much after uh, Marcus Aurelius, one of the re main reasons that the Eastern Roman Empire would eventually fall is that, like, uh, Justinian would end up picking fights with the Persians at the same time that he was trying to conquer Italy. It's just... Um, you know, it's not like the Romans are immune to this. They, they, uh, throwing, uh, throwing good soldiers after bad is, is, seems to be a, a symptom of being an empire. I don't disagree with that. I'm comparing Marcus to Taizong, though. Uh, it does look like if Marcus had his way, he would have, you know, sat in Rome and, and read for most of the day. Whereas it seemed like Taizong had more ambition for his empire. And I think, I don't mean to use ambition as a dirty word there, because I think Chris touches upon you know, the different circumstances that the two empires were in. Marcus is at a point where he's trying to hold greatness together. Whereas Taizong is at a point where he's trying to reforge it. Marcus has inherited Hadrian's foreign policy, essentially, of, well, let's just wall it off. And... <laughs> but not even just Hadrian's foreign policy, though correct. Um, you know, I think a great example of that is Hadrian's wall, about 100 meters north of that is uh, or the Antonine right. Wall. Um <laughs> Just, just a little further, guys. <laughs> but um, Antoninus Pius really allowed things to calcify yeah. in a way that Hadrian did not. Like Hadrian was very vigorous, you know, visiting uh, his provinces all the time. You know, surprise inspection, the emperor is right. here. Um, where Antoninus was completely the opposite, and that was the turn, really. It was a peaceful reign that he had, but things were, they were getting a little softer, a little more complacent. So it, I mean, in general, if I'm going to criticize Marcus and, and I am, um, a lot of the criticism that I have for Marcus is in the, is, is in terms of stuff that to be fair, his predecessors were responsible for in terms of that calcification 
And to a certain extent, Marcus was just running around putting out fires and never really had a chance Pretty much to, from day one. Yeah. Never really had a chance to get at the real problems in the Empire that had sort of been allowed to fester by his predecessors. And then, of course, you know, he no one can prevent the spread of disease. But, um, yeah, if, you, if you're going to have a criticism of Marcus, it's going to be around that calcification. Which largely he didn't have the time or uh, ability to sit and try to address. So uh, I'm just because we're already talking about Marcus, I'll just follow through with that. Yeah, it was literally after his first day in office is when Parthia really blew up. And that really began a series of events which prevented him from doing a, a lot of internal reform or if he was even interested, I don't want to say that he was because he was a big supporter of the traditional Roman values that we, we associate with, you know, the time of Augustus. But he did do some things, which to me is really where we get at the heart of the idea that he was a philosopher king, which, you know, is the conceit that we're proceeding under here. And a lot of it is in abstract ideas. Nothing about him screams that he was unconscientious or not conscientious the way like Caligula was. He was very frugal. He was very, they were very popular because he was very frugal. Very restrained in, in just the way he went about his life. The proper amount of pomp for the princeps. Nothing over the top. Um, he could be seen attending the games which he loathed but attended them anyway because it was what was expected but he could be seen there with his secretaries doing desk work essentially <laughs> you know he was very diligent and and as he would even say himself in 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 his meditations you know you know there's a dignity uh, to be brought to all things in life and he he, he very much exemplified that you know, he was a person who also learned from his mistakes in a shrewd way. I've I've mentioned the rebellion of uh, Avidius Cassius, and we're going to talk about that more later. But he was a Syrian who was the governor of Syria. And after that, Marcus was like, well, nope, that's never happening again. And he began a, uh, a system by where the governor of a province would not be from that province anymore. The troops that were in that province would not be from that province anymore. So, for instance, like, okay, any troops in Syria, we're going to pull those ones from Britain and put them over here. So you have a, this very shrewd arrangement where the political leadership, the military establishment, and the populace are all on a different page. So they can't be a threat to you as the leader at the center. Some other practical policies that, that he put in, um, just good politics. He established imperial foundations uh, to help support poor children. Permitted free speech to an extent which, you know, people, contemporary writers were writing critically of him, but were doing so safely, um, which doesn't happen a lot in the ancient world. He was himself was very proud of the fact that during his life he never killed a senator, which happened quite a bit as well um, with different plots. 
the one thing though that you know you could say may not have been the wisest thing though you know it was a temporary expedient uh, and the Romans did not really understand economics um, because well one nobody really does and if they tell you they do they're lying <laughs> but Marcus began ever so slightly to de- devalue Roman currency which would be the fast, easy solution that many subsequent emperors, you know, would also uh, follow in that, uh, in that example. And I think overall, it's just with Marcus, his rule is just, he tried to exemplify, I think, the highest ideals of what the princeps was supposed to be. He didn't, I don't think, considered himself divine. I think anyone who's read his meditations, uh, he, He's pretty clear about the fact of trying to remind himself that don't let yourself be Caesarfied. Don't try to be mortal and uh, never be forgotten. Better men than you have, have tried and have failed. I think his dedication to duty really is the thing that defines his reign. Well said. Uh, I think in many respects, there's, there's a lot of similarities here uh, for, for both of them. Uh, both, as you just said, uh, both are very devoted to their duty, to their job, and they see it, and this, I think, is is critical for both the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire and probably any empire across time. You kind of get this this difference, uh, ultimately, and in, uh, sorry, in Marcus Aurelius's case, I think you, you get it immediately after him, sort of this stark contrast with Commodus. Of of an emperor, in Marcus's case, uh, who sees it as a job and as a duty and as something that must be attended to fastidiously, versus the other kind of emperor who sees it as a right or as a privilege or as a luxury, something to be enjoyed and and used. And, and so, in Marcus's case, I think he definitely fits the bill of of being a of being a good and, and resolute uh, ruler. And I think Taizong fits that bill as well. You said that he would go. He would go attend the games, and uh, I was laughing about this. Uh, but do his desk work while he, you know, pretended to watch. That's that's a great image. Unfortunately, we don't have any kind of a, a record of of uh, Taizong going and attending games. But what we do have is writings saying he was just constantly at work, and in fact, he had his bed chambers, which you can imagine were large. He had positively wallpapered with different missives and and papers that he had to read and laws that he needed to sort of go over and check, and he'd just stick them up on the wall until there was there was no wall left. It was just paper on top of paper on top of paper, and he was doing this day and night. He had extra candles brought in each night. He actually his uh, ministers and officials actually had to arrange themselves to uh, be working shifts. Um, so that at any time, day or night, 24 hours a day, somebody could come and answer questions that he might have about, you know, what's this latest law mean, sort of a thing. So this this is a guy who was just absolutely in the thick of it and completely dedicated to his, his work. Um, it's not for nothing that he would actually name his era. That's something that these Chinese emperors did. They would... Uh, essentially restart their calendar uh, periodically 
rather than it being the year, you know, 625, it's we're going to start year one of the era of whatever. Well, Taizong's whole era, he was kind of uh, uncommon in this, where his whole reign was uh, a single era, and he called it Zhenguang, which means true vision. And that's how he thought about what he wanted to do. He wanted to have a single focused vision and he wanted to do whatever he had to do in order to achieve that vision. In terms of the social order, it in, internally it was largely about trying to maintain stability. But in terms of the conquests, um, that provided a, a measure of instability that did need to be dealt with. Um, you had suddenly... Within the borders of the empire, this large population of of steppe tribes that had all submitted to the to the uh, king, and uh, now needed to be dealt with in one form or another. There were a few different competing theories on what they ought to do with these Turks. Um, one of which was kind of what they'd done before during the Han Dynasty. Uh, which was, okay, we should separate them, we should dis distribute them across the empire and sort of um, make them live alongside Chinese so that they become Chinese and then they'll, you know, they'll become like us and there will be no difference anymore. That was one, that was one operating theory. Um, that had a bit of a bitter taste because that had rather... Uh, amazingly backfired at the end of the Han Dynasty uh, and where you had these populations of of ethnic foreigners living within the borders all together. They'd kind of re-coalesced and they'd never lost their identity. And then they they that had been the foundation of a large-scale rebellion, which had ended up overthrowing the last dynasty. Um, so Taizong wasn't so hot on that idea. Uh, what he ended up doing was he saw the value of keeping these Turks within the dynasty, but on sort of the outskirts of it. Don't bring them into the center. Don't inter don't try to integrate them. Um, instead, let them be Turks. Let them remain as they are and use them as sort of the military bulwark against everyone else on the outside of them. This was also kind of a, an older idea, but he, uh, Taizong really um, sort of... Uh, turned it into an operant policy, uh, which is to, wh why should we send perfectly good Chinese people to guard our borders when we have perfectly good foreigners who can guard our borders for us? Um, so what he would do, and he would do this on virtually every border, is take these, these indigenous or non-Chinese peoples and say, okay, you just keep doing your thing. That's fine. You be you, but you work for me now. And what we'll do is is uh, we'll have some of your princes at the capital. We'll teach them. They'll it'll be great. Uh, but just to make sure that you do your job, and then the rest of you, well, if any of your cousins over on the other side of the border come and attack, well, it's your job to to fight them off. Um, and this would be a very good, very workable policy that would allow the Chinese to kind of feel safe enough to uh, to really start rebuilding their society uh, in the interior. And it would work right up until it no longer worked in 
and then it would uh, mm-hmm. backfire uh, at that point. But for the the reign of Taizong, if we just look at that that uh, one reign, it was a very great success in that regard. A very good policy. All right, my quiet friends, Ben and Steve. <laughs> well, um, I was uh, distracted for a moment, so forgive me if I'm uh, highlighting some stuff that got mentioned. Uh, but given that uh, we talked about Marcus Aurelius devaluing the currency, I think it's important to note that Taizong... Did Taizong establish the currency? Or was that... You, you could give credit to him or his dad. Uh, they they okay. kind of take co-credit. <laughs> Okay. And then the other one I had, um, I'd been doing some reading and one of my sources, uh, okay, I'll, I'll just come clean. One of my favorite history books ever is the cartoon history of the universe. (laughs) 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 And the section on, uh, on the Tang, he, he gives, uh, Taizong credit for massive land reform. Um, whereas in your show, you talk about Taizong being fairly conservative and, um, I was wondering if you had a, a comment on which of those was true or how you square that circle. Yeah, that's a interesting point. Um, I, I think it, it comes the, – the answer comes from how you approach approach it. If, if you just look at Tong as being, you know, oh, well, it's the dynasty and let's just look at it by itself, then, then yeah, I, I would say that uh, Taizong does have significant, you know, aspects of, of reform and change – um, the way that I approached that question in, in my show, though, was coming from having done, you know, 20-something episodes on the massive civil war that had immediately preceded it. <laughs> and so what what I saw it as, and I guess how I would still explain it as, is less about him being, you know, we're going to change everything and we're going to make massive reforms and more about just it. he's just sort of – actually trying to get the society back to this idea of what it had used to be. So if if he's mm-hmm. making these large-scale changes, it's from chaos to order. Um, so I view that less as being like, you know, revolutionary or, or very reform-minded and more just trying to get, you know, everybody to calm down for a second and let's just please, you know, put the sword down, we're going to be okay kind of a, kind of a mentality. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I saw it. Okay. Now, what about Buddhism? It's just about this time where Buddhism's starting to uh, work its way into mm. China. How did Taizong feel about that? Well, you're very right. Uh, this is the, the Tang Dynasty is pretty much when Buddhism really sinks its teeth into China. Um. Taizong was not especially um, religious, or at least not so much so that it really comes through in a whole lot of texts. Uh, he was very sort of down to earth. He was very grounded in terms of just he was interested in the job of governance, and his religious beliefs um, really don't stick out that much. He was tolerant of Buddhism, but he was also tolerant of um, uh, the native religion, Taoism. Likewise, he was tolerant of even the the odd um, uh, Christian Byzantine emissary who would, you know, come toward the latter half of his reign. Um, 
And that in in and of itself is kind of a an interesting policy of it's just a sort of this broad scale toleration of you can believe what you want to believe, um, which you know, it's not especially impressive unless um, I, I sort of put it against some of the these earlier other emperors and even later emperors who would you know bloodily purge. Uh, Buddhists and Buddhist monks and, you know, destroy the temples and, you know, bury the monks alive and burn all the books. Uh, Buddhism had had a pretty uh, checkered history uh, in its early part in China. You'd get emperors who, uh, you know, fully embraced it and tried to, you know, join a monastery and run away from the throne and then be dragged back. And then you get the other ones who are trying to destroy it outright as being this, you know, foreign devilish influence. But uh, Taizong in that regard falls, I think, I think to his benefit, he, he falls kind of right in the middle. He's not super duper Buddhist, but he's also, he's not against it. He's just pretty broadly tolerant of whatever. The, the Turks can believe in Tungri. The Southern Chinese can believe in Taoism. The, the Northerners can believe in Buddhism, and he's okay with all of it. The contrast with uh, Marcus Aurelius and Christianity is interesting. Um, it's kind of an open question how Aurelius dealt with Christianity, because I think a lot of the Christian authors wanted to embrace him because of, you know, they, they liked what they read in the meditations, but then there's at least some evidence that, I mean, he didn't like Christians. He was very much a, a pagan philosopher. Mm-hmm. So, and some of the early writers accuse him of starting a persecution, but there's really no direct evidence of a empire-wide persecution until Decius yeah. a few years later. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I kind of looked at it as Marcus didn't really care a lot about Christians in that kind of benignly uh at that point they just weren't on the radar yeah, they were just some weird cult yeah they were a weird little cult in the in the provinces and leave and it to the, the local Jews, magistrates and the Jews know? had been crushed a few years earlier and they weren't really an issue at that point so it was yeah. really um you know, the two thorn in his side religions of, or the thorn in the side of religions either earlier or later just really weren't an issue at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the general paradigm for Rome is you don't really care who you worship so long as you acknowledge the divinity of the mm-hmm. emperors in the provinces. And, you know, if you don't, I'm going to leave it to the, the local administrators to deal with that. So I'm sure there were there were Christians who were killed under Marcus Aurelius's you know broader reign. Um, I can't say that while he's fighting Germans on the Danube, he really cared a whole lot about what the Christians were up to, or conversely, what was happening to them, if anything. Um, you know, so I don't think he's a, a persecutor, uh, but he's certainly not a patron of anybody either. It's sort of. And you just can't. Oh, Is there ahead, the difference man. between like benign neglect and malevolent neglect? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you know, flip a coin. Which which one? 
And you just can't ignore how much social chaos would happen when a third of the population in some places are dropping dead. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I look at Marcus's reign, generally speaking, and you, anyone who's read the uh, meditations, like this guy is not exactly thrilled about things. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) like he seems to me a guy who genuinely didn't really want power um knows he can't turn his back on it you know feels like he can't and he's got to see it through to the end and and i think you know chris said like it's a job this is my job i'm gonna get up every day do the best i can and then you know come write in my my diary about it well so (laughs) about how it makes me feel i've yeah uh, two ways I can go from there, but I'll stick to serious topics. Um, it's his live journal, but no. Um, <laughs> um, another way of looking at that, though, is that he also didn't have any passion for governing. Um, he didn't seem to like put his his head into it and come up with like really inventive solutions to the problems that he was facing. Now, again, that's sort of me asking for him to be a brilliant <laughs> a brilliant person and not just, you know, get up and punch the card. He, he certainly, he did a great job for someone who didn't want the job. But by contrast, Taizong wrote an entire book about, you know, great and inventive ways to be, maybe not inventive, but great ways to be a good emperor and have power and have wielded effectively whereas you know oh, yeah. aurelius aurelius's book is just like you know dear diary i was sad today <laughs> well i let's be fair ben um I, I will give i will give taizong all the credit in the world you know his manual is his emperor's manual is is much better because it was meant to be yeah uh, an emperor's manual. Marcus Aurelius's meditations, whether you call it the emperor's handbook or whatnot, it was it was literally his private philosophical reflections. Like he was literally doing exercises yeah. meant for his eyes only. You know, so it's not fair to say his literary talents weren't up there with uh, with Taizong's. Uh, you're ready for publication, but yes, he did not seem to. Uh, really have any initiative for figuring out new and inventive ways to change the system. Like Diocletian would later. Uh, You can argue whether his reforms were good or bad, but they were original. I'll give him that. And and Taizong was probably more, his head was more in in that sort of area. And and I'll also point in that with Taizong's manual, um, it it was definitely used... uh, later on and, and pointed to as, as this, you know, great manual of, of how to rule. And I think it is certainly that, but I, it's also kind of a dear son, please don't mess this up. Uh, sort of a <laughs> note. Um, so it, it was written with his son in mind, kind of with him knowing that uh, maybe, maybe his son was not the best choice to follow him. And so just like a complete idiot's guide of how to not screw up this whole empire, sort of a manual. <laughs> Uh, we're getting so close to this. We have to talk about their succession plans. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, we do. And I I wanted to ask Chris if you would talk a little bit about the rebellion of of his sons because that ties in so much with his succession plans. And then I have uh, a, a Marcus Aurelius rebellion to compare that to and then we can wrap up with the heirs. Okay, so uh, the rebellion of of Taizong's sons. Now, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, he'd come into power as a result of, well, essentially a a kind of a palace coup, killing his older brother. So, I mean, we have to kind of look at that and be like, you kind of had this coming, Taizong. You you should have seen this uh, somewhere in the cards. Um, But among his own sons, he would end up overseeing this this kind of rebellion and an attempt to seize power. So his son, who's the Prince of Qi, uh, gets angry over some restrictions that are put on him. And so he he, he kills his secretary, <laughs> um, this guy named Chen, and declares that he's in rebellion now. It's sort of like angsty teen kind of stuff. Um, so very quickly, this Prince of Qi is captured, um, and he's delivered to Chang'an, the capital and Emperor Taizong feels like he has no choice. You've declared rebellion against the empire, so the punishment must be death. I'm sure it must have been a very difficult decision. Um, I do think it's kind of in a very dark way, kind of in favor of Taizong, in that he puts the the law even above his own sentiments. There's there's no. Um, oh, but you're my son, so we'll just banish you kind of a thing. It's no, this is the law. You and uh, all your friends, basically, are are supposed to be put to death, and so you will be. Uh, the prince is given the, the option, which he takes to take his own life, which is considered to be more noble than, you know, being executed. Going forward, however, this does not end the whole uh, plot, And in fact, another one comes about very shortly thereafter. The crown prince was afraid that he was going to be removed. He was going to be replaced by one of his younger brothers. And so to try to, you know, counter this maybe eventual replacement, he sort of enters into this conspiracy with a few other princes and some of the the generals and he decides he's going to try to overthrow Taizong before Taizong can come and potentially replace him. Uh, you can't kick me out if I've already taken your job, Dad. But as always, almost always happens, um, this very secret plot leaks because it always does, because the only way you can keep a secret between three people is if two of them are dead. And so this, this plot gets out, the emperor hears about it, and... Uh, Emperor Taizong is, is very shocked. You know, you, you're my heir, you're my son. What, what do you think you're doing? Um, and so he convenes the Supreme Court, uh, which is consisting of, you know, high members of the, the legislative court, and they carry out this investigation. And so because the crown prince had been found guilty of uh, being a part of this this plot to overthrow, the emperor trying to save his own position, uh, he's then deposed. <laughs> so he, he basically gets himself kicked out of his own job. 
um, by trying to save it. So after the crown prince is deposed, then he promotes the the prince that the former crown prince didn't want. Um, but then he becomes convinced that the former crown prince, I'm throwing that around a lot, but I don't want to get confused in all the different names there, um, was actually being sort of motivated by this this younger brother to commit treason. So he becomes convinced that the younger brother convinced his older brother to enter into this plot in order to uh, to bring him down, and so he also removes the younger brother. He says, okay, neither of you can be crown prince anymore. So then a third son, and, and you know, these emperors, they have dozens of sons in many cases. Um, so he creates this, this third son, uh, Li Zhe, as the crown prince. And the, the older two brothers, he exiles. He says, you're out. Go out to the far-flung provinces. And this third son, who's suddenly and very unexpectedly the crown prince, he's considered to be kind and gentle and kind of, uh, you know, uh, somebody who just liked to pick flowers and, you know, was not very mil- military-minded. Uh, and eventually, Taizong would kind of start to wonder about, you know, is, his, is he really capable of, of effective rule? But regardless, it would be this third son, Liza, who would ultimately succeed him, uh, even though he'd not really been raised to eventually rule. That would become his successor, uh, Gaozong. And it would prove to be the case that, um, indeed, he wasn't particularly prepared to rule. Uh, he was not a particularly effective administrator. And it would be under Gaozong that ultimately his wife uh, would seize control of the entire empire. It's a tough family to be in. Yes, it is. <laughs> it sounds like. Well... Marcus also had to deal with a rebellion that hit sort of close to home. There's all every indication that Marcus was not a a robustly healthy man, and he was often falling ill, and um, you know there was sometimes worry about whether he would survive or not. His wife Faustina was obviously a, a person who cared about Marcus, who cared about. Uh, their son, Commodus, who, uh, you know, was only about 14 years old, I think, in, in 175 AD, when Marcus fell ill and, and it, they, people thought he was going to die. Now, his wife maintained a correspondence with the governor of Syria, who was a, a hero from the Parthian War, um, named Davidius Cassius, and we don't have the correspondence because it was burned, but some confusion happened in 175 uh, where Cassius got the idea that Faustina told him that Marcus had died. You know, come save me, save my son. And uh, Cassius was hailed emperor by his troops in Syria. Uh, the problem was uh, Marcus was, uh, was not dead yet. So once he kind of got up and, you know, figured out what was going on, uh, you know, things went quickly. Uh, initially, Cassius had some success. You know, most of the eastern provinces, uh, besides Cappadocia and Bithynia, sided with the rebels. 
But very quickly, once it was people were aware that Marcus was alive, you know, the the Senate freaked out and declared Cassius a public enemy, and Cassius's own troops, you know, ended up killing him, which uh, really upset Marcus because he was so looking forward to pardoning Cassius, um, and and it was something that he himself seemed to understand what was going on and how you know maybe Cassius was doing this to protect his family. Not a lot is clear about it because a lot of the details were lost, but you know perpetually putting fuel on the the conspiracy fires very shortly after this uh Faustinia died, which is never convenient right after you may have incited a a uh, empire-wide revolt. <laughs> but that's just how Marcus dealt with it. I, it seems like to me that uh, Taizong's definitely cut a lot deeper than uh, Marcus's did, though it may have cost him his wife to some regard, uh, you know, because they're not sure whether she committed suicide or was put to death or she just died because, I don't know, drank bad water or something. But. I think under the rebellion question, I myself would probably, you know, throw this question to Taizong because uh, that's a tough day at the office. <laughs> the way you told that story with the uh, with Marcus Aurelius, that just m- reminded me of the the Monty Python "Bring Out Your Dad" sketch. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not dead. I'm yet. not dead. <laughs> that was all. But I think. <laughs> But I think this brings us to the last topic to talk about, which is, uh, you know, the heirs who who would succeed these men. I think Chris uh, talked about Taizong and his worries a little bit already about, you know, his his son maybe not being the best choice. Was there anything you wanted to add? Um. Okay, so his successor is going to be called Emperor Gaozong. Um, and as as I said, he, he wrote, Taizong wrote his manual to his son as essentially a, you know, step-by-step guide to maintaining everything that I've built for you. Please don't mess this up. <laughs> um, and I, I have to say this about Gaozong. He's, he's, um... He oftentimes gets a bad rap, and, and deservedly so. But on the other hand, he he did an okay job. He just happened to do an okay job, but be married to a woman who was like a force of nature. He wound up marrying, and then promoting through his ranks of of, uh, of consorts, this woman named uh, Wu Mei. And she would end up becoming the very infamous Empress Wu, the only woman ruler of China. So that, I mean, that tells you something about how that whole relationship dynamic is going to function. Um, she winds up dissolving the whole Tang Dynasty very briefly and deposing two of her sons. And, you know, she lives until she's 80-something. And, you know, then afterwards, the Chinese look back at everything she's done. And she's like, okay, well, that's never happening again. We have to make sure that that just never happens again. But as for Gaozong himself, again, he was, he did okay. Um, he ruled for a period of 
30 years, 33, 34 years. He was meek, he was mild, he was often quite subservient to his wife, even while he was in good health. Um, but he didn't screw up the whole empire. So in terms of picking a successor, could Taizong have done better? Certainly. Unfortunately, his better choices, the ones who he'd trained, were off in Nowheresville because they'd tried to overthrow him or had been implicated in a plot, and he felt he had no choice. But his third string choice, you know, the guy who was just there to warm the bench, wound up not being great, not being wonderful, ultimately subsumed by his own wife, but not an awful choice. As opposed to Commodus. Yes. <laughs> As opposed to Commodus. Caligula Part Two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do some apologizing for Marcus here. Now, Marcus didn't have a lot of heirs. Um, he didn't have the you know, the same situation as Taizong. He had had fourteen children, and Commodus himself had been a twin, and the good twin apparently <laughs> died. And he he had even been uh, put behind a younger brother who also died, you know, young following a surgery. Can we? Um, Can but, we pause for a sec? Uh, the fourteen children all by one woman. Yeah, man. Wow. She yeah. was busy doing his duty for the state. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say Taizong had dozens of children, but definitely not with one woman. Was... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Marcus didn't have a spare heir. And this is kind of a unique situation for Rome itself in under the princeps because uh, there weren't usually a lot of blood sons for emperors. I think Vespasian is the only one who had one at the time of his death. Um, you know, Augustus certainly didn't. Tiberius didn't. And I think it goes on and on like that. Um uh, until you get to Vespasian, and, and that got a little crazy there with his sons. But even those two, um, Titus and Domitian, they weren't born princes. So Commodus was the first person who was, what they say, was born to the purple. It means they were born in the palace. He was born, you know, being coddled and yesed and, you know, surrounded by sycophants growing up. And I think that, well, one, I think that warps people. And Marcus, to his credit, even tried to get Commodus out of there. He brought him to Germany. He brought him on an extended tour of the empire, trying to trying to give him a similar, if not better, experience than Marcus had under Antoninus Pius. But Commodus was not Marcus. And that's what the problem is. So like when Marcus finally kicks the bucket, as I alluded to, there may have been one battle left you know, to silence the German tribes for generations. And uh, that didn't happen. He ran back to Rome. He, you know, began showing that he was much more like Lucius Verus, you know, his his would-be uncle who had died years before. He was a drinker, a gambler, a profligate, who essentially handed off you know, the empire to uh, some secretaries who were wildly unpopular, 
um, until he decided uh, that he was actually Hercules and uh, began dressing, uh, you know, in lion skins and carrying a club and fighting uh, as a gladiator. Uh, he had survived one assassination attempt to which the bonehead, like, shouted, this is what the Senate sends you. So that that resulted in a lot of senators being put to death. And uh, eventually he was assassinated, but it had been like 10 years of wasted time. Uh, in, in the meantime, and I think the tragedy of of it is Marcus was surrounded by talented young men uh, other than Commodus. Um, he had a son-in-law, Pompeianus, who was an, uh, a good general and administrator. He was close to Pertinax, who uh, would actually briefly be the emperor following Commodus's assassination. And uh, Septimius Severus was known to Marcus Aurelius, and he ended up being possibly the last person resembling the princeps, but probably the first the first of the emperors who probably represented the dominant as opposed to the principate. So the question you have to ask yourself is why did Marcus Aurelius do that? I mean, because he himself was adopted. Hadrian had been adopted. Trajan was technically adopted by Nerva. So why would he be the one to break it? And um, Well, he... God I mean, none of the other ones... None of the other five good emperors had natural sons, and mm-hmm. he did. And this gets to my my complaints about Marcus, is he was, you know, a good man, and as far as we can tell, and, you know, as far as, the, and a, a, a dedicated civil servant, but he wasn't looking past what was expected what what it was his duty uh to what would actually you know be the best move and you know under the the roman system if you have the eldest son that's the one who inherits and there's no you know if you try and mess with that then things get weird and so that's the one who ends up with it and we'll just go on with that <laughs> and even if you know he didn't want that want commodus to be the emperor, he ran out of other sons, so he wasn't going to rock the boat by putting putting up someone else, even if it would have been a better choice. I think it's very likely if he had picked anybody else or tried to put any power-sharing arrangement uh, together, I think there probably would have been a civil war. And I think he was trying to cut that off, which I think contradicts your point a little bit about him not thinking three-dimensionally. Because... After Pertinax is assassinated, shortly after um, Commodus is assassinated, we have the year of the five emperors, which is one big blowout civil war with five right. contenders. You know, so. But I mean, there's there's a major difference between a, a planned transition to either a power sharing arrangement or an adopted son who is a better candidate as opposed to having Commodus screw over the administration for a bunch of years. Um, 
thin out the ranks of potential successors and then get assassinated in a messy coup. <laughs> well, I think the point is that Marcus had to face a decision where he either had to kill Commodus mm. and adopt somebody to avoid a civil war or just give it to Commodus. And maybe, maybe Marcus does come up short in this because obviously Taizong was willing to do that. Yeah. He was willing to put his son to death where, you know, Marcus wasn't. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think that Commodus took enough positive action to warrant a clear death sentence, though. I mean, maybe if he was planning five steps ahead, that's how he would have, might have seen it. But, um, you know, that that is potentially something you could leave for your successor to deal with. I mean, you can throw the guy in jail. <laughs> Very cushy house arrest or whatever. Possibly, but it'll probably always be a focus for whoever is not happy will always find, okay, who's the next legitimate heir? True. My point my point is easy my point is easy to overstate because we have hindsight so I'm I'm not going to push it. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right, so like we've we've trotted out these different scenarios where you know they face similar situations and they've taken very different actions uh in most of the cases. Anybody have uh an overall opinion um of who they think is the greater of the two? I don't think that it's clear cut. I think that it is pretty surprising how uh, close their lives paralleled each other, though. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was surprised about that as well. Personally, I fall on the side of Taizong, although I would rather hang out with Marcus. (laughs) He seems like a better person, and certainly I wouldn't want Taizong anywhere near my uh, my family. (laughs) I think the scope of Taizong, too, from Korea to Kazakhstan to Vietnam to almost into Mongolia and all these different people, Turks and Koreans, and it's that whole, just how vast that is, is really mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I obviously I'm, I'm uh, rather biased in my opinion here, Um so I mean, I I would want to give it to Taizong, but I, I mean I I've got to say going over Marcus Aurelius as well. It, it's I've I've looked at Roman history before, but uh, you know I looking over this specific emperor, um, it is for good reason that he's considered one of the five good emperors. He he did a really good job with the cards that he'd been dealt right up in there until the end. Uh, then he kind of he kind of biffed the end, end game. <laughs> And so I, I mean, it's one. On the one hand, you have this this emperor ascendant who's you know reclaiming everything and you know just going on this blitz across Asia. And so I, I think it's it's very easy to to rack up points for for Taizong in that respect. And I I do want to say I do want to give Marcus the the laudations he deserves for holding on to this this older established empire that's been around for a while and just the 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 unsung often unsung job of just trying to maintain what you have um which oftentimes doesn't doesn't get the credit it really uh it warrants so i 
I am still going to say that I think uh, I'd give it to Taizong, but I, I do want to, um, you know, give uh, Marcus Aurelius the, the credit he very duly deserves. An honorable mention? <laughs> A participation trophy. <laughs> <laughs> Just competing in the 50 Shades of Great games is an honor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm obviously going to take a, a similar uh, tact to to Chris. You know, I've I've largely am a supporter of uh, Marcus Aurelius. I, for all the reasons Chris just said, that he deserves laudations. Um, it it is much less sexy holding everything together, um, you know, than than winning new territories and you know, reestablishing glory. But I, I think for me, what it comes down to is, you know, Marcus was able to withstand everything that he mm. withstood. Parthia did invade the Eastern provinces. The Germanic tribes did invade from the North. A third of the population was decimated. And he did make a mistake when he gave it to Commodus. But he did still, despite everything, hand off the empire as he found it, plus two other small new territories, Macromania and Sarmatia, to his heir. And I think just pulling up even at the end is more than enough for me to, to put it in um, you know, Marcus Aurelius's favor. Though I do want to say that learning about Taizong was so very rewarding for me personally. I, I always look for more enigmatic uh, Chinese emperors who I can sort of recognize something in because there are so often these flat representations. Mm -hmm. And I found that Taizong was someone who was recognizably complex. And that on top of you know, his outstanding achievements at reforging, uh, you know, Chinese domination, you know, in the East, uh, I find him to be a truly impressive man. But with that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank all of the panel today. Uh, gentlemen, do you want to give brief plugs for yourself before we sign off? Let's start with, uh, Ben. Okay. Um... So yeah, my show is Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Uh, it's about the wars of the Reformation, although we have yet to get to them. Um, my podcast, you can uh, learn all about it at Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. Steve? And I'm Steve Guare. I host a show called The History of the Papacy Podcast. And it's about the history of the popes of Rome and early Christian church. And if you want to learn more, you can go to a2zhistorypage.com. Mr. Chris Stewart. Uh, I am Chris Stewart. I run the History of China podcast. And you can find that at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. And again, I'm Tom Daly, uh, host of American Biography. Uh, but now, listeners, uh, what we want to know is what you think. Who do you think is greater, Marcus Aurelius or Tang Taizong? Uh, check out our Twitter poll at Agora Podcasts and let us know. 
And remember, you can also follow the Agora Podcast Network on Facebook. And I would like, again, just to thank you guys for your time. You were all great today. And I want to thank the listeners for, well, listening. That's it for now. Hope to talk to you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 